Hello and welcome to another episode of our cybersecurity podcast series. My name is Ali Uthman and I am the cybersecurity country head at HSBC. In this podcast, we will be discussing the cybersecurity risks of having unsecured digital footprint. Joining me, Barry Searle, who is the director of training at Intiqual Pro and leads the Cyber Stars Initiative, which is a program delivered to businesses in over 30 countries over the last four years. Barry, so if we want to discuss digital footprint, in, in, in short, a lot of people use this term, a lot of people hear this term, but what is actually mean when we say digital footprint? So we are all internet users, a big part of our everyday lives now, and it has probably been part of most of our lives for 20 years or, or more. We put perhaps blind trust in using the internet that everything we do is maybe kept in a secure fashion, or it's simply once we stop using a service, that service no longer exists or remembers what we are doing. And in fact, that's, that's certainly not the case. Most of everything that we do online is recorded somewhere. It may not be easy for us to find, but it's, it's there somewhere. And if we are not looking for it, potentially somebody else will be. So a digital footprint is the accumulation of all of that internet usage that tells a story about you. It tells people what you like, your hobbies, your interests, your educational background, uh, your work history, the people that you like to spend your time with. It tells them about your loved ones. It tells them about your buying habits. And so digital footprints on their own are not something that we need to be frightened of. We need to be aware that we have a digital footprint. It's then about our decision as to how we want that footprint to look or be exposed to those that maybe have malicious intent towards us. So we protect the things that are most personal to us. What do you think it's the most important thing when it comes to secure our digital footprint? So there are a number of things we need to do to secure our digital footprint. Most people are now exposed and we do a lot of digital footprint exercises. They are exposed by their legacy materials. So the things that they use their Yahoo, Gmail, Hotmail for, not just now, but maybe 10 years previously, things that they posted or wrote or bought and they think they've forgotten about. A lot of that is about transitioning to maybe use a new email address. So if you've used an email address for 20 years, would you use a car for 20 years? You wouldn't because they would become overexposed and you'd, you'd feel that that was a risk to you. So we maybe make too many decisions around convenience rather than security. So thinking about moving to email addresses that have not been exposed dozens of times for sensitive things, your finances, your banking, uh, maybe booking travel, uh, not necessarily everyday activities, but things that are a little bit more sensitive. And then thinking about how much information we need to share online. So as an example, on your LinkedIn account, if you are head of marketing and you are customer facing, you probably want to tell everybody about the company that you work for. If you are head of payments and pay all of the invoices, do you want to tell the entire world that you are the person that pays invoices for a particular organization? Because that will open you up to targeting and threat. So criminals in Venezuela could well be trying to target a company in the UAE. Um, do you need to tell all of those people that you are the person that is going to pay those fake invoices if they try and send you an email? Does it only apply an individual or there are also digital footprint for corporates? A, a corporate digital footprint is probably even more important from a business sense 
because a cyber attacker or a cyber threat group don't just look at one individual, they use a lot of automated tools to understand how an organisation is structured. So if one person's LinkedIn account has a few paragraphs of information, um, that's maybe useful, but if they scrape the entire company and they identify 200, 300, 1,000 LinkedIn accounts, they can quickly put together a picture of the hierarchy. So who is the CEO? Who is the COO? But who would they talk to? Who would they expect to receive emails from? What does your payment cell look like? What do the technical and IT team look like? So if I want to pretend to be somebody from IT support, who would that be that would email you? So none of this process takes them a long time, but most threat groups now will profile at an organisational level. And everything an individual does contributes not only to their own exposure, but to their overall organisation's exposure as well. So yes, um, personal footprints are a jigsaw piece, if you like, of a corporate digital footprint. And we get questioned a lot about a, t a certain type of attack called business email compromise. So business email compromise is a big problem and it comes in a number of formats. So you can brute force attack somebody's business email and gain access simply by knowing their password. It is an absolute essential in this day and age that everybody has multi-factor authentication, two-factor authentication on their business email. The problem on business email compromise comes from the fact that over 60% of people use the same password for everything at work. So if they're using a password for their LinkedIn account or their Microsoft Office or maybe to book travel or to go to a hotel and that password is lost, then somebody can potentially log into their email. So two-factor authentication, essential. The other way business email is compromised is through, through malware. So somebody clicking on a link, opening an attachment that gives somebody access to their email as well. Businesses just need to monitor email usage far more two-factor authentication, understanding unusual use of email, so simple things, but not ignoring the fact that business email is the primary target for threat groups to compromise. And, and, and Barry, there is also the terminology of cyber criminals or cyber crime. Can you also give us a little bit more of background around when did this term become something that we have to worry about? Cybercrime is, is like any other threat that we have seen because you can't really judge factors like access to finance, even access to training. You will find that some of the biggest attacks that we've ever seen have been carried out by teenagers that are self-taught through YouTube. So judging your adversary's capability or their intent is very difficult. You don't need any real backing. The definition of criminality as well also suggests that these people are breaking laws and there are still over 30 countries across the world that have no laws whatsoever in relation to cybercrime and prosecute nobody. So we determine these people as criminals, but it's far more complex than that. Um, a lot of them may be people with the capability that are just testing their skills, don't understand the damage that they are causing, and it's far more accessible now than it was. YouTube shows people how to create computer viruses. There are surface web websites that you can go and buy thousands of viruses and pieces of malware and as long as you tick the disclaimer to say you will only use it for educational purposes there's no vetting associated with any of that so you have what is intentional criminality which are your organized criminal groups that cause some of the biggest breaches that we know about but a lot of the disruption that we see is caused by people that 
that potentially don't know the impact or the consequence of what they are doing. Um, one of the biggest attacks that we saw going back a few years now was actually a child that was playing Minecraft and uh, was annoyed that his Minecraft competitor was, was beating him, so he conducted a cyber attack to take down his competitor's DNS provider so he would lose internet access and he could enjoy his game of Minecraft in peace and he impacted over 80 global businesses as a result. Now, do we class that individual as a criminal or somebody that's just misguided in terms of the impact that they can have and the level of connectivity that the internet provides is fantastic, but if we try to take something out or disrupt, we potentially have unforeseen knock-on effects on lots of other things. Barry, let's switch gears and, and internet of things. More and more devices are connected to the Wi-Fi, smart houses, ring bills, cars even connected to the Wi-Fi and to the internet and to the public internet, smart EC controllers, and you name it, right? Now, what's your view on these and, and how does these devices all contribute to our digital footprint? And what do we need to do to make sure that, okay, I got a smart home, but I got a secured smart home? That's absolutely the point that we should be making, I think, and I'm going to take that phrase from you. Having a secure smart home um, is a... But people don't think about that, do they? People just want connectivity. The Internet of Things is, is a very dangerous concept. I think, as the human race, we always put development over security. We thought fossil fuels were fantastic, and now we've discovered global warming. We thought plastic was great, and now we've discovered that we're destroying oceans. And we thought connecting everything to the Internet was great and now we're losing critical services at a, at a vast rate. So 50 billion internet connected devices last year. Most households will have 10, possibly more internet connected devices, but a very small proportion of them have adequate security. Why? Because the legislation doesn't exist to make developers of internet of things connected devices implement security and it would be costly to do so. So why would they bother? There are websites out there now that will allow anybody to access and hack into any Internet of Things connected device that does not have a default password change or a basic firewall. I showed people dashboard security cams and home security cameras and they are absolutely astounded at how easy it is in two clicks of a button to be in somebody's vehicle with them, seeing everything that they see but listening to all of their conversations. Um, baby monitors, home security cameras, your TV, we put things like security cameras into our homes to provide our families with a sense of security because as you say before we think a lot about physical security but do we realize that by putting those cameras into our home we're potentially allowing anybody access to see and hear what goes on with our families so it's making sensible decisions and when we put internet of things connected devices in do we know what the security implications are basic password features firewalls, it's not high level stuff, they are minimal features that should be there, but we need as consumers to start asking the questions, not how will this make my life better, how will it allow me to do something slightly quicker, is this going to potentially compromise my house? Because if one thing on your home network is compromised, you maybe risk everything else as well. So yeah, safe, Internet of Things use is something we should start thinking about, but we're probably, or well, most people are a few, few years away from that, I think, and the problem is once you've connected it and you get used to it being a benefit and part of your life, it's then harder to convince people to disconnect things. 
bringing these Internet of Things devices and put them onto the corporate network, does that introduce new risks? Does that introduce new areas that we have to look at it from cybersecurity perspective? What's your view? On that? It does. Um, if we're looking at security infrastructure for any premises, the first thing we will do is walk around the building with bits of equipment that can pick up every internet connected device. And we're looking for doors and windows, and that's, that's how businesses and, and homeowners need to see internet connected devices because the internet is external to your home. The internet is something global. Every device you attach to it is potentially a door or a window in the office environment or in, in the home environment. Now with IT, with computers and your laptops and your phones, we are putting security features in, we are locking those doors, we are locking those windows, but with coffee machines, with security cameras, with fridges, with printers in a lot of places, they are devices that when we walk around the building, we can see them and we simply search by insecure and we're looking for things that and they are the devices that we're looking to attack. One of the best case studies, a casino in Las Vegas, um, incredibly effective cybersecurity until somebody connected a, an internet connected digital thermometer to a fish tank. No security whatsoever. Cyber criminals sat in the hotel, breached the thermometer and yeah. they managed to steal one and a half million dollars as a result. So it happens. I've seen attacks using uh, plugins, internet connected air freshener plugins. Yeah. If it's connected to the internet, it gives you bandwidth and we have to look at them exactly that, doors and windows. So if you're going to put a door and window on your home, make sure it's got a lock. Barry, we got something in common. We're big advocates for cybersecurity awareness and education and we keep telling people advices, tips. But I get contacted a lot about cybersecurity career, right? And um, a lot of a new generation wanted to join this because from the outside, it looks very something ticky, uh, very something nerdy, and a lot of people that want to jump onto that um, kind of field. Absolutely. So there is a global cybersecurity skills gap at the moment. I think every organization I work at has cybersecurity openings. They are you know, good career jobs, good paths, but it's difficult to get into because the education sector is probably too slow to move with cybercrime. They don't put themselves, cyber criminals aren't going through courses, they aren't spending three years, four years at university. They are learning, they are implementing. And my personal opinion is that for those of us on the defensive side, we need to learn in the same way. So quick and often. There is no such thing as a cybersecurity expert, and I always say, if I'm ever described as that, I was only an expert yesterday because the world has changed again today. So it's continuous learning. My advice would be to start off with networking courses, so understanding how networks are developed, function, understand what network traffic looks like, because in order to know if something is broken, you need to know what it looked like when it wasn't broken. So you need to understand networking. Then it's starting to look at cyber threat intelligence. But I would advise not to, not to spend two, three years of your life on a particular course, because the reality is by the time you finish, um, it's no longer valid and I think big companies see that as well. One week, two week programs, nighttime learning, um, all of our technical staff are constantly in learning doing continued professional development but a day, two days, five days here and there, little and often. Uh, and I think employers respect that as well because people are then current. Think about the amount of systems and applications you've worked with since you've been here. 
who could go on a course and be an expert in all of them? I would suggest nobody. So you need to understand if you want to work somewhere, what systems, applications, programs do they use? And you take the courses that are specific to, to uh, generating capability within that organisation. Thank you, Barry. It's a pleasure having you here. Uh, thanks again for the time. Thanks for, for all the knowledge that you shared with us. Thank you. And thank you very much. Always a pleasure working with HSBC.